What you're about to listen to are three incredibly special episodes of the podcast, episodes that I hadn't planned to record, and episodes where God showed up in some pretty amazing ways. I had no plans of recording this until uh, the Sunday after Easter. I was attending the large gathering of my church Easton Fellowship, and before the sermon, two guys, Kyle and John, got up to share their stories. Kyle was a young man who had gotten shot in the back of the head, and John was one of the doctors that attended uh, as he recuperated. Now, their story in and of itself is amazing, but there was something else going on that night. I felt like the Holy Spirit was doing something. Now, for some of you, you might hear me say that and say that, what does that even mean? That sounds weird. Uh, but I just had this deep, strong sense that God was at work, that the Holy Spirit was present, and that there is something important about their story. And more so, I felt not a nudge, but a shove that I needed to get them on the podcast, not because of their story, although it's an amazing story, but because I felt like God was just saying, you need to get a mic in front of these two guys. And what followed was me trying to track them down and coming across Kyle's phone number unexpectedly when somebody texted both of us, not even knowing I was trying to reach Kyle. When I talked to Kyle, he was so on board that he ended up three-way calling John into the call and really quickly it came together just a few days later that they were sitting in the room that I'm sitting in now and recording. And there's so much more I could say about how I am confident that God was present on that Sunday, that God was present in the conversation to get us together, that the enemy was trying to stop it, and that God is in what you are about to listen to. There's so much that I could say, but I'll just say this. Um, God is at work, and God is speaking, and for some of you, this story is going to be a way that he's going to communicate something to you. Now, someone out there right now is thinking, wait a minute, did Paul just say three episodes? Why, yes, I did. When Colin and John shared at Easton Fellowship, they were given seven minutes to share their story, and they quickly realized seven minutes was far too short. They ended up sharing for about 20 minutes, and they realized then that 20 minutes was far too short. And one of the clear things for me in preparing for the recording was I felt like God was saying that I needed to just let them talk, that I should not put a time limit on it, just let the mic record and trust him. <laughs> and if you've ever edited uh, audio or video, you know the longer an interview is, the more work that lies ahead. And as they were sharing, and as we drew closer and closer to two and a half hours, I began to think there's no way I can consolidate this into an episode. There's no way I can consolidate it into two episodes, and three episodes would just be outright nonsense. But something really cool happened. I got to the end of what was going to be the first section, and, and it was unbalanced. There was just far too much time left for a second episode. But then as I started to go through it, it's John sharing his story, and I began to realize, wait a minute. There actually are three stories here. God reminded me of some words that Aaron Rhodes said, which you'll hear at the end of the third episode, that the three stories we see here are the story of a young man whose faith was strong, but whose natural body was dying. Another man whose natural body was strong, 
but his spiritual body was dying and how God resurrected and brought those two together. This is the story you are going to hear. So I encourage you, make the space to listen to these three episodes close together and be encouraged because God is at work. You are listening to episode 18 of the Where Did You See God podcast. Father God, I want to thank you that you are God and you are good. And I just thank you that you are up to something, that you've you've given me the sense of that, um, that Colin John had a very strong sense that you wanted them to share on Sunday. And then as we talked this week, um, they, they felt good about just coming here and, and sharing in this space. And so we don't know what it is you want to say, what it is you want to do, but we pray that it's your words and not ours. We just pray for the Holy Spirit um, to be present and to guide the, the questions, the comments, the moments of silence, um, not so that there could be a great story as a result, but so that you could be honored and glorified. So we commit the entirety of this time to you, every word and every moment. That's Paramount's holy name. Amen. 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 Just to kick it off, you know, what is the, the quick 30-second who you are for each of you? Want to take it away, John? You can go first, Kyle. Okay. Um, as you know, I'm Kyle Jones again. Where I'm at now, I'm a 20-year-old guy, young guy, born in Baltimore, raised pretty much in the Richmond area. The age I am now, I'm very appreciative uh, for a lot of things in life, uh, just because the situation, not only what the situation beholds, um, but the things I've seen and been through growing up uh, in the Richmond area. Yeah. Um, I would say no matter the things that I have been through, I know that it is a light at the end of the tunnel. Mm. So. I've been striving to, f- to find that light. Okay, so uh, I'm John Ha, 37 years old. I was uh, born in uh, Seoul, Korea in 1981. Uh, I was born to uh, a very Methodist uh, mother and a very atheist father. Uh, it was quite the uh, diametrically opposed viewpoints that were kind of placed on me all of my life. Uh, then I moved to the States when I was seven, so I, I, as soon as I kind of started picking up what, what it meant to be a person in South Korea, our family packed our bags and came to the States. I uh, was in North Carolina at the time and uh, realized that I got a sense of what I was, was completely challenged. That was my first exposure to uh, what I didn't know the word for back then is cultural diaspora. And so just had to rebuild myself at that point, kind of figure out what what people like in the States. And uh, in the process, I was kind of raised uh, both as a Methodist as well as an atheist. I was given literature from both sides. I was given a Bible when I was uh, seven, alongside a football. Uh, the Bible was a story Bible. I must have read it five times. I loved it. I was also given um, books by Stephen King. Uh, Stephen Hawking, I apologize. <laughs> That's completely <laughs> Stephen King as well. I was I also read Stephen King as well. Stephen Hawking's, uh, mm-hmm. Stephen Pinker, a lot of uh, um, Sam Harris, a lot of agnostic slash atheists. They have been very strong influences. And uh, uh, let me fast forward to now. I'm a, I'm currently an MD PhD student, about to graduate. 
I just learned that I will be a VCU neurology resident for mm -hmm. the next four years, so I'll be continuing to be in Richmond. Uh, I'm heading into graduation, and I, as I sit here, uh, as that date approaches, um, I think I feel nervous in some sense, and I am just uh, eager to see what God has planned for me. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there's a lot of gaps kind of in between, um, but I do want to end on one note is that I'm required to sort of collect some pictures of my childhood, sort of my progression up to Richmond, and uh, present them to my MD-PhD program because they have a graduation party uh, that they sort of, um, they sort of like present their students who are graduating and it's like a farewell. And I was looking through my pictures and the pictures that I have are of me uh, when I was young, like until eight or nine years old. And then there's a big gap. There's a big chunk of my life that's missing. And that has a lot to do with how my family has imploded over these years. Mm -hmm. And so I, I was kind of coming to terms with that um, before I came here yeah. to have this conversation with my brother over here, Kyle, yeah. and then Paul. Yeah. I'm going to use that as a segue. You know, you just referred to Kyle as, you know, your brother, Kyle. Mm -hmm. A year ago, y'all didn't know each other. No, we a year not. ago, there is there is very few reasons why you would even know each other, mm -hmm. and yet you're sitting here today, uh, as as brothers. And so it's a it's a amazing story that Kyle. I'm gonna, you know, toss the figurative mic to you. You know, it started back one day. You were just you were going to visit a girl. Yes, sir. Um, in life, we consider people just friends. I guess you could say. Um, in this moment, I didn't really know what a friend was. Um, what I considered someone was a friend allowed something like this to happen to me. The person that I considered a friend at the time uh, was actually standing outside waiting on me. And this person uh, allowed another person to actually text me from her phone um, to come and meet up with her and uh, to spend time with her. And when I arrived to the scene, I had a feeling when I pulled up in the car that something wasn't right at that moment. Um, as I slowly opened the door, because something told me not to go all the way to her, uh, when I actually opened the door to get out the car, that's when two people approached the car with the gun. At that point, it was kind of an unbelievable scene. And as I slowly pulled off, I remember um, getting shot. And you would think of getting shot as a hurtful feeling, uh, but it was more or less like a, it wasn't a hurtful feeling, it was more of a shock. Because um, I literally remember the whole scene being awake uh, fully. I can vividly see the scene. as I, After I got shot, I actually hit my head on the steering wheel and crashed and totaled the car in front of me. And the reason I, I tell people all the time that I thank God that I actually crashed and totaled the car, uh, because who's to really say if I didn't crash that car at that moment? It's sad to say, but those people might have came and tried to finish the job. So me crashing into the car in front of me actually awakened a lot of the neighbors because it was at nighttime and somebody actually came out to help me. I slowly climbed out of the car. Um, this is where I had on a white t-shirt. And when I looked down, the shirt wasn't white at all. It was red, covered in blood. And it was just one of those shock moments. It was very surreal. I knew it was real, but I, something was like, I just couldn't believe that this was real. Mm -hmm. It was one of the moments like, I really can't believe this is real. I slowly climbed out of the vehicle and the guy came and approached me. Mm -hmm. And I actually want to meet him and thank him because I want to talk to him and I actually want to just spend time with him because he was the one that actually called the police at that time, the ambulance. 
Um, and that's when I slowly sat down against like a pole and I looked down my shirt and I seen blood dripping down my shirt. And at this point, did you know that you had gotten shot or you just knew something had happened? At this point, I knew um, it was because it was a shot and the car crash. Mm -hmm. I kind of figured, okay, am I shot or is it the car yeah. crash? So I asked him. I literally said to the guy, hey, am I shot? And I, I literally, yeah, it was, it was, it was. And because it wasn't even like, it wasn't like in your arm. It was it the was back of your back head. It was back of my head and my neck. And now I have a, uh, it, I was actually injured my cerebellum. I had um, a bedside surgery to remove the bullet from my brainstem. And that's when I actually went into a coma. And it was just very unbelievable. I sat there. The only thing that could go through my mind was just forgiveness. Hmm. Whatever I did, Lord, just forgive me. Because I've always been a faithful guy. I've always known there is God. There is a God. He's always watching over. Uh, but at this point, I knew, you know, if this is my time to spend time with you and to be up there with you, forgive me for all the mistakes I've made down here while I've been here. At that point, that's when the ambulance arrived. Uh, like I shared in church, they actually, first time, unfortunately, they dropped me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's, it's something to laugh about, mm -hmm. but they didn't they didn't know how heavy I was at the time. And they didn't know you knew. They didn't know I knew. <laughs> I was I was wide awoke. Uh, uh, they might have not known, but uh, even the ride to the hospital, I vividly remember the whole night. And um, I look at it as a blessing and a curse at the same time. Um, but to be able to share that story and vividly see what I went through, to know that it's a possibility still to be able to sit here and talk with you guys, spend time and share my story with other people. I know it's, it was a reason for me to be able to remember and see everything that happened to me. Yeah. And thank God that I still have cognitive skills to remember and think and see the things vividly that happened to me at that time. So you're in the ambulance, you're heading to the hospital. John, were you, when he arrived, um, were you on like one of the first teams to kind of see him come in? Actually, uh, I was not much involved in the, his care as, he, as soon as he was coming to the hospital. Mm -hmm. uh, I found out about Kyle later on um, in the uh, neuroscience like IC unit as well as the brain rehab. Mm -hmm. uh, when I ran into Kyle was uh, in that period uh, in which he had already been coming out of his coma mm -hmm. and the physicians, uh, we had a team of physicians that were evaluating him and we were just uh, amazed at what had happened. And so tell me about that. Um, you weren't there when he arrived, but you read up on all the notes. Yes. You know, what What was the general feel for the doctors that were there when they saw this 20-year-old with a gunshot to the head? Yeah. You know, several, like, what, what were they thinking? What was their prognosis? Why did he go into a coma? So Kyle um, had gone into a coma because he shot in the back of his head. And the injuries to the back of the head are the worst kind of injuries that you can get in brain injury. Uh, the reason for that is the skull that's sort of surrounding your brain. It's sort of static. It's this, it's this structure that protects you from injuries or blows, you know, external force. Mm -hmm. uh, but it can also be dangerous when there is swelling going on, like a bullet. In Kyle's case, it kind of lodged itself in the back. And that bullet can cause a lot of swelling the swelling can crowd out the blood vessels and the contents and then kind of collapse the entire brain. And so for Kyle's case, uh, um, the physicians were puzzled as to what happened mm. when we were reading the notes. And so as Kyle is telling us the story, like I sometimes, it kind of gives me more information as well as, well as insight into what happened. Uh, but 
there was massive confusion <laughs> as uh, the physical rehab doctors as well as the neurosurgeons, as well as the neuroscience ICU physicians, uh, as well as uh, anesthesiologists, as well as all the professionals, you know, read Kyle's story. We were all kind of dumbfounded at what happened. And we were also sort of like not knowing what to expect at all as Kyle is coming out of his coma. What is his prognosis? And uh, what can we do to improve his brain function? And uh, there is no precedence for a lot of these things. Being in a coma for seven days after brain trauma, especially a gunshot wound, isn't a good thing to any patient, especially for that long. It's, there is different sort of staging that's used to sort of uh, classify brain injury patients. Uh, at that stage, it's considered like uh, he's in, uh, there are several classifications that are used to describe this, the, the severity of brain injury. Uh, his GCS was three, uh, which is the lowest score that you can get. And that's sort of uh, what neurosurgeons use when to decide whether to, to operate on Kyle or not. Well, in this case, like it didn't take a brain surgeon to realize that Kyle required brain surgery. Uh, he was he was on he was at three for a very long period of time, uh, which is the lowest score that you can get. PTA post traumatic post traumatic amnesia uh, that's a scale that sh that kind of relates to what does Kyle remember, you know, surrounding these events. He was he was he was in a coma, so he can't remember what's happened to him. He can remember chunks. A lot of these chunks are these spiritual experiences that he sort of shared with me, but um, he was out for a very long time. This is very severe. Uh, sort of uh, post-traumatic injury classification. So the one thing that was sort of kind of like the growing optimism among physicians was that he's young. He's a 19-year-old. But at the same time, the same sort of optimism had a flip side to it, which is that he's 19. He's going to have all these disabilities. Yeah, what are, so what are some of the examples? What did y'all expect for someone with you know, the injury he had, what did y'all think his life was going to look like? When I first read the series of notes, I thought he's, he's going to be a vegetable. Mm. Yeah. I thought as if he woke he up, survives. yeah. Then the next sort of uh, pessimism was, well, he has slurred speech. He has motor deficits. He has trouble, you know, moving his certain limbs, his uh, arms as well as, as, as several other deficits. And we thought those would be permanent you know, as this was happening. So it was, it was kind of a moment of like wonder as well as like a question mark as, as well as like, we were very guarded about our prognosis for Kyle, but we were also very happy that he'd be going from the neuroscience uh, um, intensive care unit, which is on the top floor of ECU hospital, which is probably where some of the, uh, some of the most uh, vulnerable patients are as they can't breathe on their own or they're at risk for not being able to breathe on their own. And as I discussed in the testimony, a lot of the injuries were done to Kyle's, the, the backside of his head where the, the parts of the brain that control our breaths, um, the parts of our brain that control like a lot of different functions that we take for granted uh, were being threatened by what's uh, all the damage that's happened from the, uh, the bullet. The bullet as well as the swelling that occurred within the confined capacity of the skull. So Kyle, you know, the doctors are seeing you come in, white shirt covered in blood, like they know it's serious. And, you know, like John just shared, it's, it's not looking good. You know, you are, you have these memories of the event that happened, 
you know, you got shot, you crashed, you weren't sure exactly what happened, but you knew something happened. You remember almost getting dropped going into the ambulance. You remember being in the ambulance. And then there's this gap of seven days that you don't remember. And then you wake up. What was, what was that like, the moment you came out of that coma? I actually remember being in the coma. Mm. Reason being I say that is because I had a series of dreams and premonitions. Um, not shared with too many people. I, I, I feel like I should share with you tonight. Mm -hmm. um, one thing I would like to thank God before I introduce this topic is because, like he said, doctors predicted that out of everything, two things, cow would be a vegetable and pass away, or cow would wake up out of this coma and be a vegetable. With a brain injury, that's the that controls everything in the body. So the fact that I had a brain injury and while I was in a coma, I still was able to vividly see many things just shows me how powerful our god is so um i originally start with the dream of like um so i was in this this basement in the dream and this is why i was in a coma so i was in the basement it was i was actually getting washed by two people and i remember that every time they turned my body on the right side it would extremely hurt very bad in this tub Every time I was on my left side, it would be okay. I wouldn't feel it too much. When they turned me on my right side of my body to wash me, it extremely hurt. Now, the reason that I know uh, that this was a dream, because I vividly remember seeing this, but the funny part about it, everything that I'm gonna go over with you, my family confirmed with me after waking up out of my coma. Mm. So it would be literally a week going by, and I would speak to them and say, hey, I had this dream while I was in a coma that I was in the tub and every time I was turning my rice out of my body, I would have excruciating pain. What they were saying is basically, you know, Kyle, that was actually, you were getting flipped side by side mm -hmm. by nurses and getting wiped off. So cognitively, out in my dream, in my mind, I was having dreams about this, but this was literally happening in the hospital room. Mm -hmm. um, and I had a, a stroke or is it a mini stroke on the right side of my body. Mm -hmm. So that's where the, the pain would come from when I was turned on the right side of my mm -hmm. body. Um, also, another portion, I was in this like hotel slash apartment room and I was in this bed and I would always be in this bed and I would want to get up and move around and walk around. But I, I just was always in the bed. I seen people walking by with dishes. I seen nurses walking by. I seen cleaning people walking by and I would see my mom come in the room occasionally. So in my mind, every time I heard the voice of my mom in the actual room in the hospital room, I would see her enter my dream inside the home that I was living in. So it's like, I would get excited every time because I was just, I just would feel a lot more safe because I could hear my mom's voice and now I know that she's around me. Mm -hmm. And it was just one point where I was like, I was trying so hard in my dream to get out of the bed. Like, I just don't know why I couldn't get out of the bed. I climbed to the bottom, tried to push out of the bed. Um, I tried to climb out of the bed and I got like stuck at the corner and I was like, I couldn't get up no matter what. And then later on, my mom told me, she actually told me when I got out the hospital, I never even knew this because this dream, I didn't remember until she brought it up to me. She was like, how playfully she was like, you know, one time you were so scrunched up at the bottom of the bed when the nurses came in, they were just like, what's going on with you, Kyle? Why are you so balled up? And I remember in my mind, I remember the dream, me trying to climb to the bottom of the bed and trying to get out of the bed. So it was just so many different dreams and things that I saw that I knew it wasn't in my power to see. Because I could say any injury, you know, arm, leg injury, uh, 
face injury, anything but a brain injury, and I still was able to vividly yeah. see many things. Well, I think that's, you know, what you just said, that it, there, it, there's nothing within your power, and even in your dreams, like, you couldn't even do anything in your dreams. But the other amazing thing is, while things aren't in your power, there are ways that God shows His power. And one of the things that you shared um, when you were sharing this Sunday is about how God, in this space that your humanity wanted to leave, God found a way to create some peace, and you and you talk about Gigi. So share a little bit about. Oh, uh, that's my angel. <laughs> <laughs> I call her my angel because she has hidden wings that no nobody knows about. Um, the reason I call her my angel is because, oh, uh, she's my angel. I love her so much. Uh, so, I didn't even know audio Bible existed. I love God. I love the Bible. I love hearing about Him, but I had no idea that it was so much audio Bible out there. So each time, I think this was, was this after the coma? I would wake up occasionally. So I, even after the coma, I still was in and out of sleep, in and out, in mm-hmm. and out, in and out. The times that I would wake up, I would wake up to new family members, new people in the room. But every time I woke up, Gigi was there. She was praying or I was listening to audio Bible. And it's like, it's like, I'm thankful that God gave me the power to still hear these things. And I just heard so much scripture all the time. And that's all I could have filled in the room was just this grace of just scripture. It was so many posters around the room that her and Arlie created um, just scriptures, different pictures. It was very beautiful. Um, I had a lot of family walking in and out. So I would wake up kind of, I couldn't talk because that's why I actually have a trach surgery right here. I couldn't talk. So my communication was blinking. Mm-hmm. So they would they would have the whole alphabet spelled out and they would point to each letter. And I had to blink one for uh, one for no, blink twice for yes. And I would have to spell out sentences for them. So instead of me actually saying words, I would blink once or twice for each letter. And sometimes I would get irritated because it's like, I would, in my mind, I'm like, please start over. I messed up, <laughs> but I couldn't tell them I messed uh-huh. up. So it was just so amazing, but I just always remember Gigi being right there by my side. And she sometimes, when I woke up and she was in the room in therapy, she would let me know, like, how I felt like I was getting on your nerves. I was like, no, mm-hmm. it's fine. You know, you were you were getting on my nerves in a good way. Yeah. But she so was always there. She was inviting God into that space, a space that was normally just a very straightforward medical space. She invited God into that, praying, having scripture. And, John, you also had an interaction with Gigi around that time, right? Yeah, so, I, I mean, as Kyle is telling us the story, and uh, I've actually gotten to know Gigi very, very well. She's a dear sister to me now as well. And uh, my first impression of Kyle was after reading the series of notes that I told you about and that I was studying. Uh, my team, uh, which consisted of our fellow, uh, a, peer, uh, a fellow medical student like myself, a couple of other individuals who are riding the elevator upstairs and so we're going from the ground floor all the way to the 11th floor so this is a long elevator ride <laughs> on their way and because it's that long I was able to sort of reflect on all the gunshot wounds that I've uh, seen in my limited experience in the in the clerkship in two years uh, one was a 18 year old man uh, male who was shot uh, about 10 times mm. and uh, at, uh, we tried to resuscitate him uh, we did a clamshell thoracotomy, which is probably the most invasive procedure where you just desperately open up someone's uh, rib cage in order to find where the 
the, the, the bullets have grazed and try to plug it up. And I even held this uh, young man's heart in my hands and squeezed it uh, for a good 25 minutes as we tried to uh, stop the bleeding and we failed to do so. So I remember the time of death um, being said by the surgeon at the time. Then I also remembered uh, when I was in pediatric uh, emergency, uh, there was two, a uh, two ambulances that came. One was carrying the father and then uh, it was followed by uh, his one-year-old son. Uh, and we did an emergent thoracotomy on the son and uh, this uh, one-year-old uh, ended up dying uh, because of the gunshot wound. And there was some discussion as to how the trajectory of the bullet uh, may indicate it was an accidental. Uh, and so then I got to hear his mother uh, just screaming and uh, rightfully so in, in despair and how she she lost her one-year-old child. And so that was sort of uh, my mindset as I was uh, in that elevator. And um, then we got out of the elevator. We started walking towards uh, Kyle Jones's room. Uh, at the time, didn't know who he was, even though he's my brother now. Mm -hmm. And uh, we got to the room and there's a glass panel. And uh, before we could walk in, uh, we kind of knocked slightly and there was a young woman kind of sitting there and she was well-dressed and I just noticed that she had this look of grace on her and uh, it's hard for me to define this. I've seen a lot of patients, I've seen a lot of different, you know, uh, family members waiting in patients' rooms and there was something about her that was different. It was a sense of just the sense of like happiness at the fact that Kyle was improving. And so she came, she came out and she was so happy. She, she told us in great extent details when Kyle had come out of his coma and how, what he was able to say before he lost, he drifted off into sleep. And uh, he was saying like, he can, he, can, he can blink his eyes to communicate with us. <laughs> and then at this point, like he started making some sounds. And then uh, um, he, he can start to move his like, you know, toes. You know, at this point, and the 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 level of excitement in this woman was just unheard of. At first, like our team really thought this woman was has to be his sister, uh, like by blood or his um, uh, or someone that he's in a relationship with. And we found that we asked her, uh, "What are you, who are you in relation to Kyle?" And she said, "I'm I'm uh, actually Kyle's sister-in-law," and I was just sort of dumbfounded at whose sister-in-law would be this excited about the recovery of, uh, of an individual in the church. I just haven't seen anything like that. Uh, and so that just kind of put us in a certain mood. And I didn't know what this feeling was, but it was, it was definitely a very indelible, permanent uh, experience for me. Uh, and then we peeked in and we saw that Kyle was fast asleep <laughs> at the time. And uh, because uh, we were fairly certain that he's a good candidate uh, to transfer from that neuroscience ICU, which is very critical care, down to um, brain injury rehab, where we sort of try to improve patients' brain function. Uh, we were confident that we can let him be, let him rest, and then we'll start as he moves down. And so he, that was when he was given the green light to come down and sort of regain some of his brain function. Um, and so, yeah, I was. It was, a, it was an experience that I couldn't forget. I think uh, 
Gigi uh, Spate uh, definitely stood out you know, at that time. And so, you know, he was starting to progress. Y'all felt like he was a good candidate. What was the, um, what was y'all's estimate for what recovery looked like, how long that would be, and what did it actually end up being? Uh, we had no idea what it would be, actually. We, we just wanted to get our hands on him, see what he can do. Um, so we have a team of experts that kind of determined this. We have the physical rehab doctors. We also work uh, with the neurosurgeons at the time, as well as neurologists, um, as well as physical therapists, occupational therapists. And then we also have social workers in this uh, interdisciplinary team. And so we have to meet and sort of, we have to all independently evaluate Kyle and to see where he is. Kyle is not in a very good situation in terms of our evaluation. We're just sort of like, hmm, like it's a miracle that he's gone through you know, that coma and come out of it alive. Uh, it's, it's a miracle that uh, he seems alert. <laughs> mm -hmm. He knows he's at the hospital. Uh, we ask a lot of our patients the same questions. Where are you? Who, who are you? Um, can you tell us like the answer to these questions? Can you subtract seven from 100 and that kind of deal to test his mental status? And he seemed with it. Uh, and so that was in itself remarkable. But Kyle had a long way to go. He was uh, mod to max assist, which is a technical way for physical therapists to explain that he really needed assistance to move around. Uh, he, at the time, he wasn't even given a green light to chew on foods. Like for the longest time, uh, he had a tube in his stomach. Um, let's not forget that he couldn't breathe on his own, so uh, he was intubated. And then he had a tube in the stomach that was sort of feeding him while this was undergoing because he can't eat while he, he's in a coma. And so he had to pass through all of these tests so that we have to make sure that his throat can actually, like it coordinates the things that we take for granted that, you know, it coordinates and is able to swallow mm -hmm. and that kind of deal. So mm -hmm. we were at the assessment stage and uh, we figured it's going to take a month or two months or maybe more <laughs> uh, based on our initial sort of guess if we had to take a stab. Yeah. And so you're in this long period of recovery. You don't know how long it's going to be. There's very little you can do. Um, but God continued to bring some encouragements and um, God ended up using John to encourage you, right? Amen. Yes. Uh, John, it's funny because now I don't, I promise you I don't say this because he's my brother now. John was the, my favorite guy when he came in the room. And he didn't, he didn't talk. John was not a talker, but it was like every time he came in the room, I was like, you know, excuse me, but who is this cool Korean guy? I don't, I don't know who this guy is, but it's just some type of grace. He, he has a really graceful tone. It's just, uh, the way he talks, he always gave me a respectful nod. Every time he came in my room, he was coming to my bedside and just kind of nodded me. He would give me that look. And I just, it just, I was like, you know, I don't know you, but I like you. And it was like, it just was meant to be after I realized that I met him after leaving the hospital. I felt like it was a, it was a purpose that I posted out this guy in my life. Yeah. So I thank God for having him in my life. Yeah. And what was it like for you? I mean, did you feel like you were encouraging to him? Like what was going through your mind every time you would walk in and you would see him? So a lot of what drives me in medicine is uh, what has happened to me and uh, as I've been growing up. Uh, I mentioned earlier in our conversation that 
there are a lot of chunks of photos that are missing uh, from 80 years old plus. Uh, and I sort of uh, cryptically mentioned my family fell apart. Uh, the specifics is uh, my, uh, my maternal grandfather, who I loved, who's also uh, a deacon of this church, Methodist as well, uh, as well as his wife. They were both uh, Methodists at the Deacon Church. And my um, great-grandfather was actually the head minister of uh, the Methodist Church in South Korea. And he lived in a cave for about a year. As uh, the, uh, at that time, the um, the communists uh, who were siding with China and Northern, North North Korea were uh, aiming to take him out. So this is the sort of uh, religious background, this love of Christ that uh, my grandmother and grandfather had. And uh, my grandfather died early at the age of 58 because of a stroke. Uh, after a dispute with some of his... Um, colleagues at work. My grandmother subsequently was robbed at knife point and then developed rapid onset Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. And so just like that, uh, within five to seven years, I, I lost these two individuals that were basically like parents to me when I was, when I was growing up in, in Korea. And then uh, it turns out my father had, uh, uh, he developed manic depression and bipolar depression, which is a terrible psychological disease in which um, he went from being one of the most intelligent people that I knew to some one of the most difficult individuals to understand. Uh, became estranged by the family, would not take the medication that he was asked to because it would limit his creativity and his, uh, and his intelligence that he valued so much in himself. And so uh, I just watched this family of mine just not it's been up it's been uprooted from south korea and it just kind of spiraled downwards and i wanted to do something about that and uh, i think that was sort of my key motivator uh, when i'm uh, treating patients uh, in the hospital i remember those moments um, i remember how our family was kept in the dark uh, about how my grandmother uh, developed that alzheimer i remembered how I know I knew nothing about these medical details, and it frustrated me uh, uh, tremendously. And I, I just wanted all of my patients to be aware of what's going on, even though, um, even though, like um, the the new information that might be coming into physicians might not change our, you know, plan. And uh, I wanted to tell them if they wanted to know, and that that was just one of those things that uh, I felt strongly about. So. With Kyle, like he was a wonder, you know, like a wonder patient in our unit, and so um, there's a lot of interesting findings. And in when you have a gunshot wound to the back of your head, <laughs> and interesting brain findings, and so a lot of the times we consulted neurologists, and uh, and so and and so we had this one senior um, neurology resident come over, and uh, just I just wanted to give you guys some context that. When you have a neurology consult, they have a very limited amount of time to evaluate Kyle, and then they have to also worry about strokes that are happening in the hospital. So they, they're really on like short leash in terms of how much they can spend time with the patients. But this uh, resident came in, evaluated uh, Kyle's you know, right uh, cranial nerves, um, six palsy, which is like a, uh, the medical term for saying that he has paralysis of his right eye 
he can't move his pupils or his right eye to the right side due to a disconnect between the nerves that connect uh, his right eye and to the back of the head. And so uh, the neurologist was super excited about this specific vocal finding. And so he just kind of said, this is cool, and kind of relayed it to um, the fellow, uh, the physical rehab doctor. And uh, I just felt like I needed to go back in and explain to Kyle what that is and why, you know, why the neurologist thought it was cool and, you know, what's going on. So I went back into the room and I told, told Kyle, what you have is cranial nerve 6 palsy. This is what it is. Uh, you have this particular deficit and it's because of the specific area of your brain that's been damaged. And we don't know at this point, you know, whether it's going to be healed or not. And so it was very guarded prognosis, but I felt like it was something that I had to go in there and let him know. And so that sort of, uh, um, I just feel like every patient in the hospital, you know, has uh, issues. And some of those issues are greater than medical issues. And some of those uh, issues can affect their health you know, indirectly as well. And so I've always been sort of aware of that due to my personal experiences. My life was drastically changed at this point. The first day I was actually approaching therapy in the room, laying in the bed. I, I remember waking up the next day. I couldn't control, I'm just sharing this with you guys, I haven't told anybody, but I couldn't control my bladder. So every day I woke up for the first 20 days, I urinated on myself. So it was it was my manly duties for me to wake up and change my pants. But when I got up to lift up to change my pants, I couldn't even lift my head. Not my arms, not my legs. I I could care less about being able to lift that, but I literally could not lift my head. So all I could do was like look at the ceiling. And and then I realized at that point that, wow, what what happened to me? I that's when it really hit. I remember getting shot. I remember being in the hospital. But that's when it really really hit. At that point, I couldn't move nothing but my head, and I couldn't move that. So, I love the nurses to this day. They just are a blessing. Um, they came in the room. They introduced themselves. Um, it's kind of hard to introduce yourself to a person and let them know I'm going to help you for the next few days. Be a person pretty much but I'm very thankful for them um, so what they proceeded to do was basically change my pants change my sheets um, help me put on drawers pants help me put on I couldn't lift my legs so it helped me put on socks so I couldn't I couldn't stand up on the side of my bed even with the help of my nurses I had to get a machine to lift me out of the bed to put me in the wheelchair and at this point, I didn't include the fact that I woke up seeing pretty much two ceilings. Because at this point, I had double vision. So everything was two. The nurses were two. Bed was two. The TV was two. Everything was double. So at that point, I was in the, in the chair, finally. And it just, you know, it took it took about 10, 15 minutes uh, for me to just, re just to get my thoughts together. To know that I'm in a situation I'm in right now. I can't go back. It's already happened. The only thing I can do is move forward from it. Um, and and then that's 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 not that easy to do when you can't do anything by yourself. Because uh, as men, we're providers. We're supposed to be providers. So the fact that I couldn't even take care of myself, I just it's, it's no other feeling. So uh, that day is the day they introduced me to an eye patch. The eye patch was very helpful because once you cover the type of 
disease that I had that um, stopped my, what is it called again, John? Uh, cranial nerve policy. Cranial nerve policy. He know yeah. this is my terminology. <laughs> he knows what I need to term. I just go to John for it. Uh -huh. So with the eye patch, since it covered one single side of my eye, everything was single now. So mm -hmm. I kind of got used to the eye patch. I was a, a pirate um, <laughs> at that point. And then I would get to therapy, um, and I had several different therapies. So I had physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy every day. The, the physical therapy was the hardest, of course, because that's the thing that you're going to work the most. Um, but they started off with little things of me. It's, it's actually a video I'll share with you before I leave. Uh, it's a video of me shooting a mini basketball in a Fisher-Price basketball court. Mm. Now I look back at it and it's amazing, but that was like the hardest shot mm. in life. And it, and, it, and it represents the biggest shot of life, I would say. But... I couldn't really lift my arms to shoot a ball, uh, but I always had the support of my brothers there with me. They would cheer me on. And and sometimes I would beat myself up mentally because I'm like so used to shooting a, a three-point shot on the basketball court. Here I am two feet away from a Fisher-Price court and I can't make one every 32 shots. It was just a very humbling experience. Uh, the fact that I, I couldn't even feed myself, let alone I couldn't get up and walk myself, couldn't get up and and do anything for myself at a certain point it's a liability for a patient to get in the shower or use the bathroom by themselves so it was always somebody helping me use the bathroom that hurts your pride a lot a lot um it was even to the point where my little brother actually helped me use the bathroom and that was that was a very humbling experience because my little brother is going on 18 now and it's i had to you know nobody else was in the room and I kind of asked him, like, can you help me use the bathroom? And it, and it, just, it was amazing because he did. Mm. And it's like, you know, I'm supposed to be big brother for you, but you're still helping me out. It was it was still amazing, though. I really appreciated it. A lot of those things, uh, just to kind of sum it up, were very, very humbling for me. One thing that I always give thanks to is because God gave me a lot of grace. And, and so many people, I would have literally nurses would come in my room and they would get in trouble. The reason that I say this is because they would accidentally stay in my room for 20 minutes on accident because I would let them know, you know, I got shot in the back of my head. God is good. Look what he's done for me. And I would start a conversation that turned from five minutes to a 25 minute God is good, God is good conversation. And at, the, at that point, they're checking their watch and they're getting beat like, I'm supposed to be, I'm supposed to be cleaning the next guy. So they were getting in trouble, um, but they were very trusting and it's, it's just like, the reason I thank God so much is because no matter how down I got, no matter how low or no matter at the at the bottom I was, I always had God uplifting me. And I always had that spirit of it's worse out there, but I can do better. Mm -hmm. The things that I'm going through still wouldn't even compare to somebody else in this world could be still going through something worse than I was. Out of the things that I went through in life, the coma, the stroke. There's so many things I could sit here and name you that I went through in the negative. But the reason God is so good is now the fact that I only have partial hearing loss. Mm -hmm. My mouth is dry sometimes. That's it. Yeah. Or I can't name anything for you. Yeah. I could tell you all the worst stories that I had in my life. You know, I had a brain injury, but God kept me here for a reason. Mm -hmm. The more things that I went through, um, not only the better... I get in life, but my better relationship with Christ. Yeah. 
So I know sometimes when you get better with Christ, you have a lot more things coming at you. Yeah. But I'm going to fight for him like he fights for me. A miracle story. And you know, if we went about this story like we so often do with stories like these, we might just stop there. We might just feel like we heard a great story that we might tell to somebody else and miss that God was actually up to so much more. That while Kyle was in the hospital, God was orchestrating things that would demonstrate his love and power and goodness. But if we only listen to the story and take it at surface level, if we don't try to seek and find and understand this amazingly complex and powerful God, we may miss the things that are happening under the surface. We may miss the things that are right in front of us. And this is how amazing God is. He takes the story of a young man shot in the back of the head, got in a car accident, shouldn't have survived, got to the hospital, went into a coma, shouldn't have survived that, came out of the coma, should have been paralyzed for the rest of his life, should not have been able to look forward, should not have been able to be able to talk straight. God took this story of this young man and not only talked about how he survived and walked out of that hospital, but said, are you sitting down? Because there's more to the story. And so in the next episode, we hear John's story and how while all of this stuff was happening with Kyle, something was happening within John. And so celebrate the miracle story, but know that this, this is more than a miracle story. And know that that's true for you as well. That as God is working in your life, there may be moments where you see him work and God may be just smiling saying, oh, that's only a part of what I'm doing. Look for the ways that God is working beyond what you can see beyond what you can expect. Make that space to ask, where did you see God? Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Where Did You See God podcast. And I would love for your stories to be a part of it as well. So there are a number of ways that you can do that. You can check out our Facebook page at Where Did You See God podcast. You can go to anchor.fm slash where did you see God, or you can leave a brief voice message at 804-372-3836. I would love to hear your stories. And if the stories you've heard have encouraged you, uh, think of someone else who could be encouraged as well and share it with them. The music you've been listening to is You'll Walk, You'll Run by Urban Doxology. They are a solid group and you will love listening to the rest of the music. So check them out. And as always, as you go through your day, ask yourself, where did you see God?